They don't know what lies on the road ahead. It is an audacious path. Some do unimaginably difficult things. Some people even move from America to Serbia to preach the gospel. Or some people are starting nonprofits to serve the community and to develop the neighborhood. And then there are people who are standing as a non-anxious presence in the midst of extreme conflict. These are some ways that today I see perhaps the audacious path playing out. Some of you here are walking incredibly difficult and audacious paths. And I'm so proud of you. This audacious way seems to be the way of this story as well. If Caleb told us last week about in Mark 1 how Jesus was healing all of these people, but he was telling them, don't tell anyone that I healed you. Then we see now as we arrive in Mark chapter 2 that they did a very, very horrible job of not telling anyone. Because as we arrive in this story at the beginning of Mark chapter 2, they're in this house. Jesus is in this house teaching the people, and the house is so packed that no one can get in the door. They can hardly move around. And I have no idea what that's like at all to be in a house where you're like so cramped in and you can't move around and you can't really get to the bathroom. And, you know, I have no idea what that would be like at all. Um, however, we did used to joke that we might have to, like, cut a hole in the, in the loft at Clubhouse until we lower <laughs> another person down. Proving that necessity is the mother of invention, these friends decide that it is best to tear apart someone else's roof and home because they are so confident that this man, Jesus, can help their friend. And the audaciousness doesn't stop there. Or the audacity, that's probably the right word. As if Jesus were picking up the baton that the that these friends of this man lowered down to him in the form of a paralytic man on the mat, Jesus begins his so his own stretch of audacity over the remaining 24 verses in chapter 2. Story after story, starting with Jesus' response to the sick man in Mark 2 5, where he says, When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. First of all, when Jesus saw their faith, plural, he forgave one man's sin. It seems to imply at the very least that the faith of your friends might lead to your own reconciliation with God. And this answer proves to be both disappointing and inciting. Did the man's friends lower this man down in order to be forgiven or to be healed? Did the scribes who are sitting there appreciate the blasphemy of the scenario? They say in their hearts, who is this man 
to do something that God alone can do. It's a sort of it's a sort of social lose-lose scenario to forgive the man's sin. I mean, if Jesus just would have done what he was supposed to do, like just for just heal the man, then everyone would have been, I mean, some people would have been happy and some people maybe would have been apathetic, but no one would have been super unhappy. He'd already been doing this. All sides would be sort of okay. So this is not this is not the best political choice for Jesus. And he follows up this action with three more in the remainder of Mark chapter two. He follows it up directly after this story as Brian read, he goes to eat with tax collectors and sinners, which the scribes and the Pharisees also critique him for. Then after that, he gets confronted uh, with these same people. Why do your disciples not fast? And he says, they don't need to fast. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, he uh, he defends his disciples breaking the Sabbath by, by comparing himself to the great King David. So story after story in this chapter, too, it's like, a home run of like audacious action, one after the other. But back to Jesus' response. What does this mean that Jesus, knowing full well why this man is here, chooses this path? The one that against all social conventions he says to him, your sins are forgiven. So I have <clears throat> a bit of a confession, which I was talking to Aaron and Caleb and David about last night. I don't especially like the word sin. It feels to me like, almost like this outdated train wreck of a word that I'd sort of rather leave behind. I'd rather focus on the positive, like the healing part. Like, that's positive. Um, but forgiveness of sins, it feels very, like, judgmental. Um, the word is weighted with shame. And it's weighted with decades and centuries of church interpretations that are just so un-Jesus. And in this particular case, it almost seems victim-blaming. It's hard, it's hard in my heart and my mind to untangle and to detangle sin from the social context of our time and our place. But I also must admit that there is something there behind the word. Like in the midst of all of the positive things I want to focus on, and if I'm, things are going well, and, you know, I'm just, you know, practicing gratitude, then I can really, like, be like, no, like, have 
this attitude of positivity and we're all going somewhere great and it's like I almost can forget about that part. Like it's all the positive, it's all the healing, it's all the wholeness, it's all the progress. But then like for me, and this is this is my my own thing, right? For me, like everything's fine and then something happens and like I get I get stressed about something or I get angry, often it's anger. I get angry about something and then like maybe not in the situation because I'm not like, you know, 15 anymore. But like later, I'm like, or like to the side, I'm like, you know, saying all of these things and their words, the words are just so harsh. And I'm like, where did that come from? Like, and you know, Jesus reminds us, you know, like those, those words don't come from our mouths, but from our hearts. So it's like, I didn't put those words in my heart. Where did those words come from? Where? Where, how did they get there? And I think that, you know, for me, again, there are virtues, things like, I mean, and this is me, uh, like some, a virtue like generosity. Like, generosity is super easy for me. I'm like, yeah, let's be super generous. Like, I, like, I don't really have any holdups with generosity, right? By and large. But, like, it comes easy. But, you know, so do these words. So do these things that, like, these, these words and these feelings that, like, come out when I'm under pressure and when I'm under stress or maybe just they sneak up on me and surprise me. It's like all of those parts are woven in with all of the good parts, too. And sin, sin as a term, <clears throat> is hard to pin down. It's like, it's like, what can we even say about sin? It's like, it's not the same for everyone. The same action wouldn't be the same for someone else. So, like, is it a sin to, for example, cuss someone out? No one's shaking their head. I was wondering. <laughs> or, um, uh, is it a sin to show up late? <laughs> is it a sin? Is it a sin not to keep your word? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> is it a sin to harm someone accidentally? How about intentionally? How about intentionally but unconsciously? Jeremy's giving me hand motions, so I'm not sure what they mean. <laughs> but a yes or no? Turn thing down. Do our do our bodies uh, drive us to sin with predispositions to overconsumption, or? On the other hand, is it the distilled and addictive substances uh, like sugar and hear me, the news and television that keep us under a pin? <clears throat> Sin is 
hard to pin down. And maybe for today, uh, an easy, simple, or a simpler way to define sin, or how I want to define sin, is just to say that sin actually pins us down. It gets us stuck on this on this path to wholeness. It's like it's like a, a clogged artery or uh, a railroad or a train that's like stopped right in the middle of the railroad crossing um, or a broken down car on the interstate. This stoppage of sin stops up the spirit of life that is calling us to pursue audacious paths. It can stop us from utilizing our God-given freedom to commit. And it can stop us from utilizing our God-given freedom to abstain. It can stop us from giving when the Spirit is guiding to generosity. And it can stop us from holding back when the Spirit is calling us to boundaries. Sin stops. Could that be why Jesus forgives this man's sin? And in doing so, implies that perhaps sins need forgiven even more than his body needs healing. If in fact you read this story closely, the healed body seems optional. Really not even done for the man, given more to the scribes in response to their criticisms than to the man whose body was healed. I admit that I tend to want to heal bodies more. Because if you heal someone's body, then everything else will heal itself. Right? Isn't that why we pray for those who are sick? Because if, if they are well, then they will be able to be more whole, more holy. Does physical healing cause spiritual healing? I'm not sure that there is evidence for that. Or do we pray for healing, the healing of our family and our community? Like these men carry their friends to Jesus with hope and an audacious faith, carrying a burden, the man himself bearing the suffering and the friends carrying it as well, hoping not knowing. Is that how, why and how we pray for our brothers and sisters? Jesus seems to indicate that forgiveness is, at least in this case, the first thing, or more important than healing of this man's body. And then he follows it up by saying that it is easier to forgive sins than it is to heal a body. And though Jesus does and can, can and does heal bodies, 
This story and others shows that Jesus can more easily embrace and endure suffering than sin. In fact, the focus of Jesus' ministry seems to be for the suffering, the poor, the left out, and not just to heal them or to get them in the crowd. Even those that Jesus picks to follow him as disciples, you think that they were, you think that they were, I don't know, if you were going to pick disciples today, you might go to Vanderbilt and pick the MDivs graduate students or something. That's not at all who Jesus picks. Jesus picks the the rabbinical school dropouts and fishermen and tax collectors and thieves, right? Jesus picks all of these people. Jesus seems to care about such different things than the rest of the world does. Welcome, kids. He has his own audacious way. Jesus is constantly speaking and acting and doing crazy backwards things that defy the social values and religious perfectionism of the time. He defies, he defies this idea of self-help of resolutions and salvation through an association with a certain political party or group. He doesn't even avoid suffering and inconvenience. You know, I wonder how many of us would actually side with the scribes on this one. Not because Jesus doesn't have the right to forgive this man's sins, but because what right does Jesus have to forgive this man's sins but not heal his body if he had the power? Is it that people's mindset about physical healing? That if you have faith enough, someone can receive physical healing? The body will be healed as well. And some with very poor theology might even say to those who haven't been healed, you must not have enough faith if you haven't received physical healing. Do we unknowingly value the technical, scientific, or practical solutions over God's inner work? Work that doesn't avoid suffering, but often embraces it, even uses it, do we, do we, as people, need more money? Or do we need forgiven and freed from our worship of money? Do we need others to change? Or do we need forgiven and freed from our judgment? 
we need medical advancements? Or do we need forgiven and free from viewing disease as a lack of God's provision? Do we need technical climate change solutions? Or do we need forgiven and free from oppressing God's creation? Do we need peace on earth? Or do we need forgiven and freed from the fears that allow us to buy into the myth of redemptive violence and arm ourselves? These are sort of trick questions. They're not meant to shame. Because of course we might need physical healing. Of course we might actually need more money or others to change or medical advancements. We definitely need technical climate change solutions. And of course we need peace on earth and not drone strikes. This is what Christmas is about. This proclamation of a good kingdom, a visible one, a real one, one that has arrived that is still unfolding, that is healing, that is tangible, touchable, practical, real. But it comes. Oh, how it comes. Not with a Nobel Prize, but with an audacious baby. Unaccomplished. Pure being. Fully human. Oh, how this man comes to Jesus, audaciously carried by the faith of his friends. From the outside, audacious stories inspire us. But to be in them and to live them, to take the audacious path is quite another experience. Jesus' audacious path in Mark 2 led directly to his unjust death in Mark 15. This audacious spirit of God-led path is not the safest one. It will not avoid suffering. And sin blocks it from happening. But the inner work, I think this story is telling us, the inner work is primary. It's the key. Being sick or well, paralyzed or not, are we willing to allow God access to the inner work? Or do we, like this man's friends, just want to see this external healing? It's easy to say, we don't have a gun problem, we have a heart problem. How easy is it for us to stand with those who have done the mass shootings and say with them, we have a heart problem. <clears throat> Maybe it will take suffering before we are able to do it. Maybe even then it will take the faith of our friends. But you can't heal yourself, your inner self. And I think that that's how I want to define sin today. The inability to heal your inner self. 
that there is a necessary inner work that we must receive, surrender to, be carried by, to be made whole. Let's pray. Those who sin against us. 